Hey guys, good morning. Thank you for joining us uh, today. There's a lot of different reasons that you may have joined us. We have people all over the world uh, that are watching. Uh, we want to let you know that we want to know you. Um, if we don't have a relationship with you in any way, uh, we want to hear about your story, what God's doing in your life. And a couple of ways that you can do that with us uh, is by going to our website at lifepointchurch.org um, where you can follow us on our social media accounts at our Facebook, um, Twitter, and Instagram. We have hope and, and pray that this sermon today uh, would help you in your relationship with Christ. Um, if you do not have a relationship with Christ, we want to help you uh, find one and, and know that uh, Jesus Christ is real. We want to help you in that. Part of having a relationship with Christ is being a part of a local congregation. Um, this today's sermon is not a substitute for biblical community. Um, it is just supplemental in your relationship. So we would hope that to see you um, at one of our gatherings on a Sunday morning at either 9 or 1030. Uh, so we really hope that we see you there soon. Uh, come see us and thanks again for, for joining us today. All right, so if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and go there. Let me set up this text because what's happened is Jesus has just wrapped up this conversation with Nicodemus. He's been involved in what does it mean to be born again. Jesus, or Nicodemus came to him at night, says, what does it mean to be uh, born in the kingdom of heaven? He says, you must be born again. He's in this conversation. And then Jesus drops the mic of John 3.16 and says, I'm out. Uh, he just kind of fades in the conversation. We don't really know what happens with Nicodemus, but we will later. So now we pick up this conversation um, in the book. And let's look what he says. After this, Jesus, after this, meaning after the conversation with Nicodemus, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salem, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized. For John had not yet been put into prison. So, Jesus just kind of jets the conversation with Nicodemus. He ends up in the Judean countryside. And it says there, while he was there, he remained with his disciples. And what is inferred in this text is that Jesus spent time with his disciples. Now, we know that Jesus' primary mission was the cross, right? That's why he was born, born to die on the cross. But another part of his mission was to make disciples. So he spent time with his disciples. Now we know clearly from Matthew 28 that we are, uh, the great commission that we are called to make disciples. It's our primary mission of what Jesus has given us. It's our turn, right? Uh, when we think of making disciples, I know that's this word that just kind of reigns over us and we're just kind of like, well, I don't really know what that means. And the first thing we typically think of is uh, Bible studies, classes, small groups, and, 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 and Sunday school, and those kind of, those inorganic discipleship. That's what inorganic is, is when we step in as the church, as the organization, and we structure classes, and we kind of set it up for you to attend. That is called inorganic discipleship, and there's nothing wrong with that. That's a part of what we need to do. Jesus is not doing inorganic discipleship. He's doing organic discipleship where he is simply inviting people into his life and he's spending time with them. What does Jesus' discipleship look like? It's developing another believer into a soul-winning disciple maker. Intentional, 
Not through classes, not through programs, but through spending time with other people. Now, I will tell you, a couple of years ago, I, uh, I began to, the Lord really kind of pressed in me to kind of look at our church. And I came, uh, uh, the Great Commission just kind of collided with me. And I looked at it and said, okay, are we doing that at our church? Are we making disciples or are we making church and hoping to get disciples? And that's what we were doing. We created environments and classes and programs and you sign up here and you sign up there. But naturally, people spending time with other people, pouring out lives, we were not doing. And when you try to make church, you rarely get disciples. But if you make disciples, you'll always get the church. So we begin to kind of spread this idea and say, man, what church needs to do that? Well, how do we do that? Well, I need to do that first. If I'm asking people to do that and that's where we need to go, I need to do that myself. So I begin to invite men into my life. I disciple a group of men. Uh, now, we pour into each other. I'm pouring into them, their transparency. I'm pouring into what it means to be a follower of Jesus. They have access to me. My wife does that with a group of ladies. And there are other people in this room right now. I could list out a bunch of names of people in our church that are, in fact, doing that same thing together. They said, hey, let's do this. I'm called I know I'm supposed to make disciples. That means I'm just supposed to pour my life in you, spend time with you. This is what I do. I read, I do quiet time, I pray, I go here, I talk to this person about Jesus. Just go with me, let's do this. This is our primary mission. This is the primary thing that God has told us to do. And what do we typically say? A lot of, a lot of excuses. Some would be, I'm not smart enough, I don't know how to do that. And there's some realities to that. Maybe you need someone to pour into you first before you can learn how to do that with someone else. If that's you, it starts with you. You have to do something. You have to step into a discipling relationship and say, disciple me, right? And you need to come talk to us today. We'll help you get connected to a group while others, you know, you, can, you know a lot of knowledge and you need to be pouring that into other people's life. And we say things like, I'm too busy. My life is too hectic. You should see my schedule. Like we all think we're busier than everybody else, right? Can we agree on that? Like you have no idea how busy I am. I say that all the time. Uh, it's not that we are too busy to make disciples. It's because it hasn't been made a priority in our life. We will always make time for what is a priority to us. That's the, that's the number one priority he told us to do. It wasn't... Make babies, uh, make time for yourself, make money. It was make disciples. That has got to be made a priority in our life or it won't happen. So if that's pressing in, man, I, I want to encourage you, step into that role. Some of you are already doing it. You're faithfully making disciples. Thank you for that. Some of you need to step into those groups and some of you need to step into those leadership Come talk to us at the end of service. I want to help you out. Women, my wife will be there. She'll help you kind of get connected or equip. I'll do that same thing with men. Uh, but I want to encourage you. That's the primary mission. And I don't want the creek to become this cul-de-sac on the highway of the Great Commission. And just dead in here, I want us to be a part of the Great Commission. Okay? Uh, now let's jump ahead. So as they were on the countryside, Jesus spending time with them. And it says upon first glance, if you look at your text, it says that while they were there, they were baptizing. So it's possible we infer that Jesus was there baptizing. But 
from chapter 4, verse 2, we are told that Jesus was, in fact, not baptizing. He was just there overseeing his disciples baptizing. Why? A couple of reasons. First one is, is that was not the primary mission of Jesus. He was not coming to be a baptizer. That was not his ministry, right? That's the first thing. The second reason is this. I believe that the second reason was, is something similar to what Paul said in, in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, when, when people had begun to brag about their baptism. Oh, you're one of his? Or you're one of, I believe that the, Jesus was saying, listen, I'm not going to do that because I don't want people running around saying, hey, I got the real baptism. I got the one from the main man. You didn't get that one, right? So he says, I'm going to be a part of that. Jesus did not baptize, okay? Uh, where they're at, let's talk about that for just a second. Where they're at, John the Baptist was down at a place called Anon, right? The word Anon in the Hebrew means springs. Anon Springs. If you're from Smyrna, you might be tracking right now. Enid, no, that's not even a joke, yo. Y'all are laughing before the joke. That's actually true. That's actually the name of we got Enon Springs. There's a church that was planted down by a river. There was the water was plentiful there. That's what Enon Springs actually means, right? There's some biblical history. The church in Smyrna was the church that was commended by Jesus in Revelation, right? So if you're from Smyrna, you're holier than everyone else. You're going to go to heaven faster if Jesus returns. You're going to be the first people there, right? You might want to get on Zillow later today. Uh, just kidding. All right, so let's keep going in this, uh, in this text here. But let me set up the scene. What, what's going on? Just to make sure we're clear. So here you have John the Baptist and his disciples. And they're in this band uh, down by the Anon. And they're, they're baptizing ministries. Great. It's going well. And they're just down the way. At the Judean countryside, Jesus is down there with his disciples and they're baptizing. Two band of brothers doing the same thing and then something gets stirred up. Let's see what it is. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, He's baptizing and all are going to him. John answered him, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from above. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. So John the Baptist and his disciples are down there and a Jew comes in and they start this discussion debate over the Jewish rite of purification. We're not told what the debate was. It doesn't go into that, and that is simply not the point. But let me speculate for just a moment. The Jewish rites of purification, they were, uh, the, the Jew would have been thinking, hey, you're outwardly cleansing people, right? That's what the baptism is about, and, and something wrong? Like, John the Baptist, where are all your disciples? Why are they all going down to get baptized down there with Jesus? Is something, something wrong with your baptism? Did it not work? So here he is stirring up dissension. Once again, we're not told why. That was a speculation. But he's stirring up division. And here's what, he, what we do know. He's basically saying this. Hey, guys, your ministry, you think it's really good? 
everybody's going down there with Jesus and they're all going to him now. You were, you, got a, you, had a, you had a great church going, a lot of gathering, a lot of people, a lot of thousands, you're baptizing. Something's up with y'all because everybody's leaving you and they're going down to Jesus. How little and how quick the disciples of John the Baptist forget. They freaked out. Hey, Jesus, you know, you know the one that you bore, that bore witness about you, that, that one, the forerunner, that guy, the voice in the wilderness guy, he was gathering a lot of people talking about you. Guess what, John the Baptist? He's down the river and he's baptizing a lot of people. They're all leaving us and they're going to him. What are you going to do about it, Jesus? There's this competition that they're, they're sitting there. They're losing their following. And they expected John the Baptist to be so upset about this. The paparazzi, they're following them. The cameras are flashing down there, no longer here. The voice of the one crying out of the wilderness is silent. He's losing his ministry. If anyone had the opportunity to puff up with pride, it would be John the Baptist. He was the goat, right? That's what Jesus said, greatest of all time, born of woman. He had the Holy Spirit in him since conception in the womb. Greatest of all time. So if anyone had the opportunity to puff up and think that he did not deserve this, it was John the Baptist. Only he did not respond like he thought they would respond. He had an inflated view of Jesus and not an inflated view of himself. He decreased so that Christ may increase. We'll get that to a proper moment. It was about self-deflection with John the Baptist and about Christ exaltation. And he was good with it. He says, remember, he's the Messiah. It's not me. I'm the forerunner. He's the fulfillment of what I've been telling you about. It's okay. He's not just okay. He's actually thrilled by losing his popularity. It's pretty wild. He says, calm down, boys. They're not running away from us. They're running to Jesus. And then he says something really, really profound. He says, no, no one can have one thing if it's not given to them by Jesus. So what is he saying? He says, they're not, they're not going to Jesus. They're going to Jesus because heaven is giving them to Jesus. It wasn't an open invitation wasn't on their own accord, their own will. Heaven was giving them to Jesus. They weren't coming to Jesus unless heaven had given them to Jesus. No one comes to Jesus unless heaven gives them to Jesus. This may sound familiar. John 6, 64, let's look at it. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. No one can come 
to me, Jesus, unless the Father draws him first. That's our salvation, church. Regardless of what we think, that we came to Jesus on our own accord, our own will, you did not. You couldn't come to Jesus unless God and heaven had given you to him first. Nothing. We have no thing unless what is given to us by heaven. If you have your Bibles, underline that statement because it's profound. You can't receive one thing in life unless it's given to him by heaven. This is the doctrine of the providence of God. Everything that you have today, salvation, belief, faith, marriage, singleness, spouse, kids, job, home, everything was given to you by the invisible hand of God. For the born-again believer... That's a profound truth. For the unbeliever, that is offensive. No, I I earned that. I've worked really hard. I went to school for like four years, six years. I, I studied my whole life. I put in a lot of grind work. Work hard at work today. I drive on I 24 every day. I labor in that. I work hard. It's mine. The believer says, not even that. Not my brain, not my will, not my intellect, not my beauty or lack of beauty. Nothing, no gift, no talent of mine has obtained a single thing in this world. It is all given to us by heaven. That's what it's saying. Now this truth Being profound should have an implication on our lives. If we believe that everything that's given to us by heaven, would that not change how we steward what we have? It's the first thing that we would do. If I believe that my spouse is given to me by heaven, do I treat my spouse like they are a gift from God? Now, now don't go telling your spouse that you are a gift to God from them. It doesn't go well. I've tried it. <laughs> but it does change how you treat your spouse. They don't, they're not there to please you. They're there as a gift from God. And if you're married today, your spouse was given to you by heaven. It's not wrong. It wasn't a mistake. It was given to you. How do you know? Because you're married. That's how. Does that impact the way you see money? Right? If you believe that God, by His invisible hand, has entrusted you with the amount of money you have today, not what you will make in 10 years from now, today's money, today's salary. If you believe that it was given to you by the providential hand of God, how do you use what He's given to you? See, if you believe that, You steward it well. How do you steward God's gift? You start by tithing. It's the first thing that you do. Then we start asking the question, do I really believe that? Do I really, really believe? 
that God has entrusted me with that amount of money right now so I would steward it well for him and tithe and be obedient? Do you believe? You can't believe everything else about the Bible and then take out this passage because you don't like it. When you start doing that, you don't believe anything about the Bible. It's all or nothing. Your gifts, your talents, your skills, have they been given to you by heaven? Or have you obtained those? If you believe that God's given those to you, heaven's given those things, what do you do with it? You serve people with your gifts and your talents. The musicians, they have skill sets, not for their fame and their fortune, but for the fame of God. You serve your church. Your church, do you serve your church with the gifts and the talents God has given to you? We need people. We always need people. We need people to love on people. We need people in preschool and kids ministry and other areas in our church. We need people who believe that passage to step into belief and live it out. Man, you might need to take a step in that today. Step into really trusting, really believing that God has entrusted you with those things. The other thing that it does, if we believe that everything we have today on this day in human history has been given to us God, that we're exactly where God has us today by his providential hand, it prevents us from the sin of discontentment grabbing a hold of our hearts, looking around what other people might have. I want that job. I want that car. I want that spouse, that relationship, that amount of money. Constant state of discontentment. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon says about contentment. Suppose a mole should cry, how I could have honored the great creator if I could have just been allowed to fly. It would have been very foolish for a mole flying. It'd be a very ridiculous object. While a mole fashioning its tunnels and casting up its castles is viewed with admiring wonder by the naturalist. Or the fish might say, how could I display the wisdom of God if I could just sing or mount a tree like a bird? But you know a fish in a tree would be a very grotesque affair and there would be no wisdom of God to admire in the fishes climbing trees. But when the fish cuts the wave with agile fin, all who have observed it say how wonderfully it is adapted to its habitat, how exactly its every bone is fitted for its mode of life. Listen to the last statement he says to us. Brother and sister, it is just so with you. If you begin to say, I cannot glorify God where I am and as I am, I answer, neither could you anywhere if not where you are. He says, the providential hand of God has given you today exactly what he's intended to give you. Where you are today is exactly where God's providential hand has placed you. And if you say, I am discontent with what God has given us and I'm unable to glorify God in the here and the now, you will be unable to glorify God in the future. God's providential hand. Step into glorifying Him, obeying Him today with gifts, talents, money, all for the kingdom of God. That's the idea that he sets here. Let's keep going in the text, 29 through 30. 
John the Baptist says this, the, the one who is the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. In the Old Testament, the nation of Israel was referred to as the bride of God. So here, John is making the connection here in the New Testament. The church is now the bride of Christ, and Jesus is the bridegroom. That's the picture that he's painted here on the front. He's saying that he's the bridegroom. I'm just the best man. I'm kind of disappearing. It's all about Jesus today. This marriage, it's all about him. And then he uses the language of the voice. The bridegroom's voice. Why does he refer to the voice here? Remember back earlier in John, where John called himself, John the Baptist called himself a voice of the one crying out in the wilderness, right? And in that voice, he gathered a lot of people. They they came, they, they followed this cry, this voice in the wilderness. Now what he's saying is this, there's a greater voice, a greater voice than mine, a voice that raises people from the dead, a voice that calls people to life, a voice that calls out to his sheep and they come because they hear his voice, a a voice of the bridegroom who calls out and the bride comes to the bridegroom. That's the language that he's using here, the picture between Christ and his church. So here is, once again, this picture being painted. John's voice is becoming silent It's fading. Everyone's leaving. You would think that he's just kind of sunken down. He's losing influence in the world. And he responds by a just simply profound statement. What does he say? He says, my joy is now complete because this has happened. I'm not just settling. Like, I'm not just okay with it. He's not like, hey, boys. We have to be cool with this. He's Jesus. He's God, and I'm not. We, we have to roll with it here. we got to play our role, know our role. I've got to obey because he's God. That's not what John the Baptist said. He said, my joy is now complete. He is thrilled because this is happening. That's crazy because that is not the recipe and the foundation for joy in this world as we may begin to think, is it? How do we think in this world that we are supposed to be happier and our fullest of joy? Well, by exalting ourselves, More of me, less of you. That is the air that we breathe. Self-determination, self-exaltation. Look at social media if you've got some time today. Well, it's all about self. We post something, minutes later we're looking on it to see how many people have liked it or approval. Why do we do that? We want approval. We want to be lifted high. We want to be thought of well. We want the approval of people. John the Baptist said, that is not kingdom thinking. Kingdom thinking, and kingdom thinking, you'll get the greatest joy in your entire life. 
to the fullest of joy when you begin to disappear and Christ becomes so visible in the world. When you begin to, people don't look at you, but they look at Jesus Christ. That is actually the recipe and foundation for joy in this life. Once again, for the born again believer, that is awesome. For the unbeliever, that's a recipe for death. We don't like that. We want people to think much of ourself. And he said that if my joy is full, he must increase, I must decrease. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said that when a Lord calls a man, he bids him to come and die. Die to himself. I've said this before. The hardest breakup you'll ever have in your life is breaking up with yourself. When you've conquered self, you'll conquer anything. Listen to what Jesus says, and it continues with this idea in Matthew 10, 37-39. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Listen, either Jesus is the biggest egomaniac I've ever seen in my life, or he is God. That is the most egomaniacal statement that you could ever hear, or it's a profound truth for the believer. We don't live in a non-Christian world. We live in an anti-Christian world who says Jesus is an egomaniac or he's in fact God. And he gives us this profound order and we're nowhere, we're nowhere in the ranking. There's no, there's no in the text, you're not going to find anything that says learning to love yourself, love yourself, it's the greatest love of all. It's not in there. <laughs> it's you get really, really low. And that, I'm not talking about a depression low where you have no value, no worth. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is you get so low and you think so little of yourself and your depravity that Christ lifts you up and says, you are my child. You have great value, not because of who you are, but because I said who you are. I'm clothed you with righteousness. That's your value. So then your life is spent making much of Jesus and not much of yourself. That's the essence of the gospel. Christ did not die on the cross to forgive sinners so they continue to savor themselves more than Christ. For there are a lot of people in this world that would be content with getting heaven without Christ. So let's just think about that for a second. Do you want Christ or do you want heaven? If you want heaven... And you don't really care if Christ is there or not. You're unfit for heaven. The gospel is not just a way to save people to get to heaven. It's a saving way to get people to God. That is the gospel. Let's close out in three, uh, 31 through 36. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all 
He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For for whom has God sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Summarizing that, John says, The reason that I must decrease so that Christ may increase is because he is God and I am not. That's that's simply put. He's God. He's the Messiah. He's the Creator. I am not. I am not. I am not. I know my place and I know the place of Christ in my life. We might think quickly to say, well, I don't think that I'm God. I would never say that I'm God. But every single time that we sin, we say we know better than God. We put ourselves on the throne every single time with our actions, with our lives. I think the conclusion here, as we kind of wrap up, is this. With looking at the life of John the Baptist, which we long to imitate... Why should we imitate John? For a few reasons. He was clear about what his mission was. His mission was making disciples, soul winning, and God glorifying. He knew his mission, he was committed to his mission, and he finished the mission out. And us, our mission, same, it's to make disciples, soul winning, God glorifying, decreasing our self and exalting Christ. That's our mission. That is the number one mission in our life. We need to be committed to that mission. It is a mission above all things. We're not talking about a mission of live a long, happy life. Have a lot of children, have a great retirement plan, travel the world, play a little church. Dismount into heaven safely. I made it. It's not the mission. The mission, soul winning, God glorifying, making disciples. Will we be able to stand before God as Jesus Christ the night before he's crucified? I've finished the mission, God, that you've placed before me. Will we be able to say that same thing? Will we be able to, to, to say the, uh, the last words of even John Rogers? This is my life. I know my place in this world. Self-deflection, Christ exaltation. Less of us, more of him. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for the life of John the Baptist as he exits this gospel. God, your servant John wrote so many other things in this book, so many things that the books of the world cannot contain them, but you put this in there for a reason. I pray we seek that reason. We see it today that we would begin to live lives that just magnify Christ. And we would be okay with people leaving us if it's popularity, if it's fame, 
followers. Lord, if we are beacons for Christ, we are well. We're good, and we have to be okay with that. Father, make this personal in our lives today that we begin to process what areas in our life do not exalt you. We love you. Pray these things for the name and fame of the only one worthy, Christ. Amen.